You're listening to the Perseverance Podcast, episode number 21. Musicians and money have a bit of a dysfunctional relationship. If you've been a musician for a while, you're probably familiar with the stereotype that true devotion to your craft means that you must be a starving artist. And if you make a lot of money from your art, then you must have sold out. And to go even further, if you listen to any other podcasts or books about making money, you can find endless advice, tools, tricks, hacks, and scripts to add more value or live like no one else so that later you can live like no one else or five weird ways to make more money backed by science. And you know, those are all great things at times, but they aren't always universally applicable to everyone. And today, during our conversation, Christian reflects specifically on some advice he heard that seems totally contradictory to all the rules of reaching financial stability. And that's kind of the point of this podcast. We exist to talk about what it's like to be human, to be a musician, and share some encouraging and inspiring thoughts with you so that you can continue to live a successful and creative life. If you are new to the show, you can read more about who we are by visiting perservice.co. We are the creative side of orchestraexcerpts.com, which is a resource I started to help musicians prepare for orchestra auditions. But if you need a quick guide on who we are, if we were musicals, Annaluce, she would be Matilda, a quirky tale about a girl who uses strange methods to make the world a better place. Jessica Wiersma, she would be Phantom of the Opera, an instant favorite with a dramatic flair. Christian Marshall, he would be Wicked, a new take on an old classic and definitely the most popular one amongst us. I'll help you be popular. And Michael O'Giblin, that's me, I'd be Fiddler on the Roof. At first, funny and carefree. But the longer you stick around, the sadder and more depressing it gets. Well, something like that. And if you've been listening to the show for a while and enjoy our program, would you consider supporting our work by becoming a patron of the show? With your help, we can improve the quality of the show, produce it more often, and reach more people. You can visit perservice.co slash patron to pledge your financial support of the show. You can become a patron for just as little as $1 a month. And we'd like to thank Fix Music Publishing for providing the hosting for our show. Fix Music is a relatively new option for all your sheet music needs, and we are thrilled to introduce you to a small business that is making the world a better place for musicians. It was started by David Friedman, who noticed that buying sheet music from these large behemoth companies with ugly websites was not a pleasant, fast, or affordable experience, and I couldn't agree more. So one of the first things you'll notice about Fix Music is the super clean and simple website which allows you to find exactly what you're looking for. They are currently stocking violin, piano, and small ensemble uh, titles and they have free shipping on all orders over $30. And as a special thank you to our podcast listeners, you can get 10% off your order by using the promo code PERSERVICE at checkout. That's P-E-R-S-E-R-V-I-C-E. So you can visit fixmusic.com. That's F-I-C-K-S music.com to learn more. All right, here is the show. Less okay. is more. Less is more. You guys, <coughs> auto for a year. Less so is more. Less is more. 
Sometimes. Very mature of you. I'm going to keep trying. Sometimes more is more. I agree. You should change it to Jess is more. <laughs> Jess, Jess is more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that right, so less good. is more. Jess, Jess is, is more. more. How do we oh, start? So how do we get this one off the... <laughs> yeah. Should we sing a song about money? And then... Yeah, money is good. <laughs> I was making no. money. Is that? I don't know. I feel like there's some Broadway songs about money. We money, money, sing. money, money. If I were a rich man. I'll leave it to you guys. Oh, that's the only one. Yeah. yeah. That's a good one. Although I will say there's a line in Hamilton. Everybody looks at the cellist for some reason. And it's something about like... How we're not poor anymore. And we're like, everybody on stage even looks at the cellist, or just no, they can't see. No, it. Just have, okay, just everybody that. in the pit looks at him. Yeah. Oh yeah, I didn't know. Is there anything about that? Because like, how did he get his face on the ten dollar bill? Dollar He started the treasure. He's like what the whole treasury system is based on, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Wasn't it his ideas? Yeah, but he used to be poor, and all of his buddies like Lafayette. And they were like, yeah, the war's over. We got jobs and dollars. <laughs> That's how we feel, right? Treasury. No, no. Jobs and dollars. Jobs and dollars. Jobs and dollars. That's... Give me that. Yeah. <laughs> so this is uh, some money and music are kind of funny topics. And I was thinking of this because I feel like as regular people just coming off of the holidays, there's a lot of messages to us as consumers. That's like, Oh, you didn't really have a good Christmas unless you got the new Chevy Tahoe or like, Ah, uh, you don't really love your spouse unless you went to Jared, you know? And so it's like, you have to consume, you have to have money to buy all these things. Otherwise you don't love your spouse. Um, and then as a musician, we grew up with a lot of messages that are like, Oh, you have to be a starving artist. Like if you want to really make it and like, Oh, that guy sold out. He's, you know, selling his art at Bed Bath and Beyond. He's not a real artist. Sorry, that was really good. Walmart art. Isn't there that movie about the modern art scene and like modern music and stuff? And it's this one guy who's trying to sell himself as a serious artist, but all his work he sells to Holiday Inn or like some (laughs) hotel chain or whatever. Yeah, he he tries to take himself seriously, but he actually makes no money as a serious artist, Uh only selling work to hotel chains. Right. Someone's going to make that art. But put pictures in there. I don't know what movie that is, though. I'll, I'll take a look at know, that. Right? I'll look it up so you can put it in the show notes. But does that... Okay, here's a question. Does that make him less of oh. an artist? Just because he's selling the majority of his work to hotels rather than, you know, special galleries in New York or LA or Chicago. Mm-hmm. Is he less of an artist? Did he not make it i mean you know if he's paying the bills yeah that because what's the difference you know someone who has a full-time job in a symphony orchestra maybe one of the top five or ten in the states or somebody who's a very established freelancer and is making it Mm -hmm. did one make it and one not i don't think it means that the freelancer didn't make it or that the person with the orchestral job made it but i do think the person with the orchestral job to a certain degree has more stability like they okay. have more, I mean, not necessarily, but I think they generally, I would definitely look at somebody with an orchestral job as more stable financially. Maybe. And then the freelance. Is, is it because, sorry, I interrupted, keep going. Like I had a nice little reminder about that kind of stuff this weekend because I um, overheard that there will most likely be auditions for 
this one place that I'm playing a lot. And, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, okay. Does that mean my spot is going to get filled up? And I might not have any work next year if I don't get that audition, you know? So it's like, okay, so I'm doing okay right now, but that could be taken away at any time. Oh my God, I just right. got really ill thinking about that. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, and also like the artist, he's making more of a consistent living than he probably would be selling his art in a gallery. Absolutely. The artist like selling to hotels. And so like maybe he feels like a sellout possibly, which is something that each artist has to like reckon with inside themselves, right? To see like, what am I okay with? And I would think that no one would feel like a failure if a hotel picks up your art. Is it the most desired platform? Maybe not. But but just like with orchestral jobs, there are only so many people that can have those. And there are only so many artists who can make it big at the big time selling to millionaires exclusively. Right. Right. Yeah. True too. It keeps coming back to sort of questions of like, well, is it just happiness that we're trying to achieve or is it massive amounts of money? Does that, is that the definition of success? And I think it depends on what your own personal goals are. And I do feel like we've come back to that a couple of times throughout different episodes. Yeah. I keep thinking it's not going to go that direction. Like we're going to, we're going to, we're going to nail this down that like being an artist means this and this, it doesn't mean whatever your definition of finding success is. But But I think because being an artist, I, I think that is somewhat ambiguous of a term because it can mean so many different things depending on. But, but do you think it's becoming less of an ambiguous term for younger generations? Yeah. Because I think, you know, this sort of cliche phrase that you used to hear after telling people you're a musician, especially a freelance musician, like, oh, you make money doing that? Or like, you know, what's your real job? Okay. I think that has definitely shaped the general musician's mindset about financial stability or financial instability, especially if they're a freelancer. I think that has given us a set of fears that we have from the get-go. When we graduate music school and we're freelancers, we know what to be afraid of because society has told us you haven't really made it or you're not stable. So you're going to be worrying about where your next paycheck comes from. But I've heard this about our generation across the board. So not just in the creative arts, but in anything, you know, rarely is somebody going to be at the same company from 22 to 65. We're not that generation anymore. There's a lot of job changing, even sector changing. You know, you can go, you can be in hotel management one day and then all of a sudden, you know, be working on film sets or on a crew, you know, just there's so many different things. So so I think this this trend of younger generations of non-artists find our work very inspiring and exciting because it's so diverse. You know, you tell people, oh, I play in this orchestra and then I gig with this chamber ensemble and then I'm occasionally, you know, teaching here or I, you, Michael, you get to drive around to different cities and play and somebody might only be in one city as an investment banker. So like when you tell them that you're traveling or playing with this ensemble, you know, Anna might say, oh, sorry, can't tonight. Got to be on Broadway playing Hamilton. Oh, that's so cool. That's so exciting. Like I have such a boring nine to five office job. We hear that, you know, because I think that generation looks at this irregular workflow somehow as super exciting and is almost as if the grass is always greener on the other side. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think like you have no idea what garden you're looking at, but like, (laughs) uh, okay. So true. Location independence is is becoming more and more desirable for younger people than not being tied down to the same cubicle, like your grandparents, you know, went to work in the same office for 50 years Mm -hmm. and retired with a pension from one of these, you know, blue chip companies. 
I don't know. I think there's been a lot of people just waking up that a lot of jobs are not stable. I heard a story the other day of this guy, his grandparents worked for Kodak or something and, you know, was receiving a pension payment, you know, every month or retirement check and Kodak went bankrupt and all of a sudden cannot keep paying all their retirees and like, poof, you know, all this like really stable, all this, this job that you thought you were going to be have you know, we're going to have your whole life. You were going to punch in from nine to five and get a nice retirement check for the rest of your life is not, it's not what it used to be. So I think there's, people are aware that there is a new norm of gigging and picking up some side work from Uber or Lyft or all these temporary things until you find sort of a a balance of different jobs or uh, you create something of your own. Yeah. And you'll see the shift. I think it's across the board with living. I mean, you know, there's still like, we have siblings that have regular full-time jobs and probably will have those same jobs. But if you look at our generation, like you're saying the tiny house movement and the income property movement, people aren't relying on those Mm -hmm. traditional norms to support themselves for their future anymore. Greg and I now, our goal is to get into artist housing in New York and maybe have an income property someday. That would be our retirement, right? Like the shift is really great. And then you look at companies like Google and Facebook where they want to have a better workflow and they have different creative sections of their offices and like they encourage travel and they've got like a game room. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything is kind of shifting into a less overall stable environment, which is why, like you were saying, Christian, people look at our lives and they're like, Oh, wow. That's so glamorous. That's so, I can't tell you how many people I know they do it for you guys too. They're like, man, I, I just like wish I could travel so much. And and do such glamorous things. Like your life is so glamorous. And I'm like, (laughs) are you kidding me? Like, sure. I get to go some cool places for free sometimes because I'm a musician, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know if I can buy groceries next week. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if they're saying that though, to say something nice because secretly they're thinking, Oh, I don't know. I could never live like not knowing where my money for the next month is coming from. I don't even think the thought gets that far because I I think think we are the generation We're used to seeing DLSR pictures with great filters and witty captions. You know, we we feed ourselves how many slices of other people's lives per day. You know, these little snapshots that we think of, you know, those Mm -hmm. are perfect lives and we feed ourselves full of them. And then that's what we measure ourselves against. There is no, I think, basis of reality. I think there's no neutral headspace with which we really see this anymore. I mean, that sounds really bleak, but I, mm-hmm. I think that's just the result of mm-hmm. how society is right now. It's kind of like how we, we didn't purposefully diminish our attention span down to what, two minutes and 10 seconds, you know, like the average YouTube clip, but oh, that's what actually, that's what's happened. It's probably even shorter than that now. Eight yeah. But like so eight seconds. <laughs> it's yeah. eight seconds, you know, yeah. but like a vine, you know, rest, exactly. Rest yeah. in peace that's vine. the result of the type of media we're feeding ourselves. So I think people aren't even really asking like, Oh, I wonder where their money comes from. It's like, no, they see a really cool picture at a glamorous place. And they're like, "Ah, that's the lifestyle. We automatically think the entire day looks like Mm -hmm. that 24 hours of those slices. Comical. (laughs) Because Mm -hmm. as we all know, well, and I think, you know, we've discussed too before that, um, and Jess and I talk about this a lot, how people are like, oh, so like, what's your real job? So there, there are two camps. Either we're like completely criticized and no one thinks we're being real and that we just need to get real jobs or they think we live a glamorous, glamorous life and there's no middle ground. But are the people who are asking you what your real job is, are they your age? 
No, see, it's a, d- a generational exactly. thing too, I think for it's sure. A gen- yeah, totally. Oh, really? I've had people around my age ask me, so what do you do? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I maybe, just, I just told and you. May- maybe it's regional too, because I think um, it could be. I don't know. Just trying to make sense of it all. <laughs> for instance, I mean, yeah, when I was in Nashville and I introduced myself as a musician, people were like, oh, well. Nice meeting you. Good luck. And then <laughs> when I'm up here in the Midwest now, uh, people are like, a musician? Like, how do you, how do you, what do you do? Uh, so tell me for you guys how money has played a role in your lives and kind of the struggle of, I need to be making more of it. I'm comfortable where I'm at or any money related problems that you've dealt with? Well, two instances come to mind. The first one, a conductor mentor of mine, this guy I look up to and always reach out to about once a year just to kind of let him know where I'm at and ask him for advice. I think I was debating something that might put me in a financially tough spot. And he was like, Christian, I've had a season of life married and with a new baby where I woke up you know, in the middle of the night every night wondering how I was going to get myself out of this penniless mess. And he goes, more often than not, the things work themselves out on their own. And that was really comforting to me because it was like, I can't control everything. And the more I try to control everything, the worse it gets, the more tense you get, the more worrisome you get. So I just, I would accept the situation and trust that it would resolve itself. And the second one on like a random... You know, afternoon when I was having a lesson, my teacher, like it was also a random comment in a lesson, somehow money came up and he goes, you know, don't ever think that in order to have a lot of money, you have to save it. He's like, more money will come in the more you spend it. <laughs> That's really seems counterintuitive. It was, it was a really weird, like offhand comment. Don't know where that came from. We're all making crazy faces right now. <laughs> <laughs> that, that gave me so much freedom. It somehow also inspired me to work more because I, I had said like, okay, I have the freedom to spend. I'm going to save for and buy the things that I want. Encouraged me to actually work more and take more gigs and look for more gigs. Because I think when I was trying to save and not spend... Mm-hmm. There was no flow. You were in like a, yeah, you were in like a scarcity or like um, austerity. The fam. Yeah. yeah. That's my personal take on it. That's if you freak out trying to hold onto money, you're, you're going to grow stagnant, I think, artistically oh, yeah. and also as a person. I just don't think that's, I don't think that's a healthy mindset. I think you're totally right. I think some people though, personality wise, if they were told that they would just and I've been a huge hole. Right. That's so right. you got to know your, you have to know yourself and your tendencies. That's why I'm making the face. From, from what I know of you, I think it's like you were buying things that you needed. It wasn't like, Oh, I'm just going to become a consumer and buy everything because I want it. And I want more things. No. Right. It was well, like, well, for example, you know, I've heard this phrase before people say, Oh, I was not making any money. So I was eating rice and beans. I tried that for four days. I I bought cheap pasta and pesto and some mozzarella and I only like lived on this. And I broke down in tears on the fourth day. Because you're on your pasta diet. <laughs> Which is better than the bread diet. I was on a pasta diet. Yeah. Because it was cheap. You know, I was buying the cheapest stuff and I was like, this is no way to live. I was like, this yeah. is sad. You know, because my body is affected by what I eat. You are what you eat. Mm-hmm. That is me. So I realized, no, I need to spend money on good food so I feel good. And that kept me healthy and kept me able to work more and eventually get better gigs and 
and become a stable freelance musician. But I think if I had stayed in that sort of, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not making it or, oh, I'm a little bit worried. So let me diminish my life quality mm-hmm. in hopes that I'll feel better. <laughs> For me, that's counterintuitive. Yeah, you'd just be shutting down. I totally agree with the whole food situation. Guys, I have tried so many things and then I'm either ready to kill people by like the fourth day or I just feel terrible because I like food. When I am in tight times financially, food is still, you know, of course, like I watch it, but that is the one thing that I'm like, you know what? I will spend the extra money on some vegetables or, you know, like whatever. So that I feel better <laughs> for me. Also, Growing up in Christian subculture land, there's a lot of talk of like the love of money is the root of all evil, right? We've all heard this. There's always this like, oh, if you love money too much, you're either a, a, you know, ugly American consumerist or you're being lustful and greedy, which there is some truth to that. Okay. I'm not denying that there's not truth to that, but there's a reality that you have to make money to pay the bills and being able to pay the bills and live you know, a happy and satisfied life is important and you need to be able to make the money to meet your bills and not be in debt. Yeah. And it's expensive to be alive. It does. It does cost money. Like the longer I live, like, man, this is expensive. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. I'm like every day I'm like, Oh, one more day of being expensive. I love the, is it dumb and dumber is like, yeah, we don't have money to get to home. We don't have enough money to get to Aspen. We don't have enough money to sleep. I love Dumb and Dumber so much. When Angie and I first got married, uh, we moved to Nashville and we both were in school. There were a lot of days where there were some real money concerns because we weren't, I know I was gigging, Angie was working on licensure and on all these and on her degree and we weren't making a lot of money and there were a lot of sort of money tensions and a lot of anxiety over money issues. And one of the things I kind of learned from that was that it's hard to not look at every problem as just a money problem that, and it seems like if you could just throw money at this problem, it would always get better. And the thing is money is not the only tool in your toolbox for fixing problems. And there have, you have to get creative about finding uh, what the real problem is or other solutions like that. It's sort of like the saying where if your only tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And so if you ever, if you're just getting too comfortable or too familiar with throwing money at every problem you see, you need to find more creative ways to solve problems. Well, I think that kind of leads into, you know, how can you take inventory of yourself and market yourself, not only as a musician and a freelancer, but maybe what are some other, you know, you, we all have skills that maybe don't pertain to music specifically, but could be put into music somehow. So, you know, like you're very good at admin. Like sounds like you're trying to find some actionable ways. That yeah. We can what are some actionable things or tips and tools like taking inventory of your skills? So how you could be a freelancer. That's a terrible sentence. <laughs> how you could, <laughs> that's a tough day guys. Sorry. But how can you take inventory of yourself, both of your music skills and your non-music skills to either better market yourself as a freelance musician or to add those skills into your freelance mm-hmm. canon, if you will. Portfolio. You to do other yeah. things. Well, I'll start with the musical ones first. Oh, oh, oh. Well, 
almost everybody has Facebook, which means almost everybody has a list of friends and a list of possible work contacts. And what I mean by that is scroll through your list of Facebook contacts. You Maybe you have someone who's a museum coordinator and they would be able to get you and your string quartet a monthly gig, you know, playing when there's a new mm-hmm. exhibition. Or if they have family Saturdays, that you play Disney repertoire for the children or something. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not kidding. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, maybe, maybe you love public speaking or you're a little bit of a music history nerd. So if there are some composers that were closely related or connected to the art on display that you work up a little uh, lecture recital and you, you offer that to the museum. Or maybe you have a friend who's a wedding planner or a photographer or, you know, and you tell them, oh, could, would you mind also just saying that, you know, of a string quartet and you can offer them. I think there are a lot of ways to get friends to help you market yourself that we just don't take advantage oh, yeah. of or we don't really, we don't really think about. Your network is your net worth. <laughs> totally. Thank you, Creflo Dollar. Um, or Suze Orman, whoever that is. I'm not, I'm not quite sure who that, who that is. Suze. Yeah, I think that's one thing. And then, of course, for me, I think, I think it's a little different because I'm living in a country where... English is not the first language. So I get to offer, you know, a lot of translation or editing, teaching, mm-hmm. tutoring, this sort of thing on the side. And, and I really enjoy doing that. But, you know, maybe, maybe you're really good at editing or maybe you're, mm-hmm. you're close to a local university where they have a lot of doctoral students from another country and they need dissertations edited. You know, I think there are a lot of just little things that are out there that we don't generally think about. Mm-hmm. So just, I would, I would say first ask yourself, what is it you like to do outside of music? And then Google odd mm-hmm. jobs in that sector. Well, I think there's still a lot of them are using your music education. Uh, like if you become a lecturer or teach you know, an adjunct class or something, it's still utilizing all your training as a musician. But I think I love what you said it is sort of an idea of because you speak you know, English and German, you're taking advantage of your unfair advantage that you speak oh, English totally. and German. And so many people, you know, don't have that. And that's just like one little thing that uh, you can do to make some extra money. Totally. I think another thing is to, okay, this is a phrase in German. I don't know if we have an English one, but it's kind of like um, being ashamed is expensive. and and it's when you don't have the guts to ask for something or if you're in a shop and you see that maybe the edge of something is torn or the hem is coming undone that you don't ask for a 10% discount or a 25% discount or that sort of thing. And I interpreted that to having the guts to write to people and asking them, do you need any subs for your section mm-hmm. or do you need anyone for this gig or even write to a if there's like a very steady gig quartet in your town that you're not a member of, but you're friendly with those people, why not ask them, Hey, can I sub for you guys? Mm -hmm. Like if somebody is sick, can I be the one to hop in? Like maybe they don't have a standard sub, you know, you can say, I'll even come to a rehearsal or two. I think you have to have the guts and tell yourself there's no shame in that because Mm -hmm. if you can overcome the potential shame, it might really lead to some possible gigs. Yeah. This is another scenario too, I think, where you need to know your personality because as we all four of us probably know, there are those people who shamelessly ask for things and it's annoying. 
And then there are people mm-hmm. who are definitely like have a lot of qualities yeah. and would be good people to play with. And they never make it known that they need work. And, you know, I've had to learn this over the years too, because similar to Angie and Michael, when Greg and I started out in Austin, we were dirt poor. And he definitely was the one that would stay up every night worrying about how to pay for things. And then when I got sick, it was an even worse yeah. emergency. Like, ah, there's absolutely no money to pay for like this medication. And what are we going to do? And, you know, those times, those seasons happen in your life. And a lot of times when you're first starting out right out of grad school, that all of that hits you really hard. Oh, yeah. And I feel like it could take a long time to get out of that rut where you are not every day financially stressed. And I don't really remember where I was going with that, but... Well, but I love that you brought up getting out of that rut because I think that what we don't tend to do or what we should do, we tend not to do this as freelancers, is analyze and try to see what financial patterns we have. And that's what we talk about geek season. So that means there are patterns of when the bank account will be slightly pudgy and when it'll be a little <laughs> bit too thin. And so we need to do that. And But we can also do that over the course of several years. It doesn't have to be year to year or paycheck to paycheck. And a great book to read on this is called The Essential Drucker. And this is by Peter Drucker. He was like an Austrian-American financial and managerial entrepreneur and expert. And he wrote some great books, but I think The Essential One is the best. And he talks about how the best managers and the best businessmen always plan on their second career. They plan on the work they're going to do from 50 or 60 until yeah. 80. Because, you know, everyone worries about their f- the first chunk of their career. But then when that's over, they're left thinking like, oh, well, am I gonna, what am I going to do now? Mm-hmm. Or what am I interested in? Or how am I going to like, you know, life doesn't end when you retire from your first job. And I love that idea of like really long-term planning ahead. What what type of work am I going to want to do in three mm-hmm. years? If I continue on the path that I'm on now, what work will I be doing? Okay, does that not line up? That means I need to start making some changes now for the type of work I want to do in three years, in six years, in 30 years. And that's really helped me long term now you know, make some contacts. It doesn't mean I have to start gigging with that group next week, but mm-hmm. maybe in two years, I'll start gigging with that group or... You know, writing a couple guest blog posts Mm -hmm. now for some people means maybe in two years, I'll have had, you know, enough references and context to land the job that I want writing for somebody. Or maybe I'll even Mm -hmm. have my own blog. Yeah, like zooming out and seeing, you know, like the 10,000 foot view and, you know, zooming even out even farther and seeing the 100,000 foot view or whatever. Yeah. Like that's really good. Totally. And having a perspective of like right now, what can I do right now? Where have I come from? Where am I going? And practically speaking, just looking at the at the whole picture and saying like, I'm dirt poor right now. Do I have a basis of frugality? Am I able to live off of $10,000 a year? That used to be my biggest, Uh or my dad's biggest joke. And he would be like, Hey babe, you're rich. You make 10,000 a year. Exactly. (laughs) And like we can in some cities live off of that if we're really wise. And I, I will say too, Christian, for me, a couple years ago, I had that shift where I was like, okay, Greg's in the quartet. Sometimes that lifestyle is really frustrating and that's not my personal career. So what am I going to do that will set myself up for a future that I'm interested in? And for a long time, we were, you know, moving every two years and it was super frustrating for me to feel like I couldn't put down roots and keep them. And networking, I felt like I was just a leaf blowing in the wind and it felt, you know, it felt bad and really unsettling. And then having, you know, to stay in New York finally, which I was super pumped about, 
I was like, okay, what do I really want this to look like? And if I'm going to be a mom someday, how, you know, and like, that's a, that's a whole nother episode we should <laughs> for sometimes about being a mother and a performer, because just looking at it makes me really scared. But to think like, what, what yeah. is going to fulfill me in 20 years that I can look back and say, I didn't do all of this for nothing. And so I started focusing on the Baroque thing, which really, truly brings me joy. And then started to think about Broadway right. and other freelancing opportunities in New York that to me look appealing financially and like look like a good time. And I think Christian, that's just a really good point that you have to look at the goals because right now you might suffer through a couple of years of not having what you want and being financially very unstable. And you have to have goals and not just be like, I want to be in the New York Phil. Cool. Maybe you can, but that's probably not going to be an immediate goal. Right. Right. Exactly. Just, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for me, actually, one thing about what you guys have all been saying about like, you know, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road. Oh, my gosh. I mean, talk about fear gripping my heart. I've had it. You know, there are some things that I'm doing now that I don't want to be doing in 10 or 20 years, maybe. But for now, they're they're totally fine. And they are helping with the bills. And I don't know, maybe I'll still be doing them in 10 or 20 years, but maybe not. And it just because you're doing something now and maybe you don't enjoy it all the way, that doesn't mean that's what you have to be doing Mm -hmm. down the road either. And so like maybe that part of your income can be replaced by some other opportunity that's going to present itself because you were doing this one job or this one freelance thing or whatever that you didn't totally love, but some other opportunities will come from that. And that's really hard to see. Of course, there's no guarantee with that, but I think more often than not opportunities Mm -hmm. come, although they might look different than what you think, but it's also a timing thing. And, you know, I've moved every two years for since I was 18 and I had somebody once tell me, you know, to get like really established as a freelancer, it's about five years before you're really established. And so like that also gives me some, or that's kind of a, a lot of our stories. Yeah. Well, even the other day, actually this woman asked me for my information cause she's like, you know, I get some, like church gigs or quartet gigs or whatever. And I was just thinking like, you might want some more work. And I was like, yes. As a matter of fact, that, but I feel like that is very unusual that someone will come up to you and say like, Hey, would you like more work? A lot of times the onus is on you. I definitely think it depends Mm -hmm. where you are. (coughs) I have lived in places where freelance scenes, it's like cutthroat and that's never going to happen. And then I've lived other places where there are, like very welcoming and friendly and you feel Mm -hmm. a little bit more plugged in more quickly. Um, So yes, I do think that is not necessarily normal, but I think you can also, as you start working with people in a city, you know, where you're freelancing, you kind of start seeing the same people or some of the same people at different places. So you can become friendly with them. And then like, eventually you can be like, Oh, Hey, well, you know, Mm -hmm. if you would ever need somebody, please keep me Mm -hmm. in mind. Cause I'd love to do blah, 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 or whatever. And that always reminds me to just be friendly with everyone because I realize when I have work to pass along, most of the time I try to pass it along to the best player or someone I can, you know, be comfortable with recommending, mm-hmm. but it's almost always to the nicest person. Oh yeah. I think that's very important, you know, be friendly, keep on people's good sides and play your best. I think so that puts I think that mm-hmm. kind of, you know, covers your basis for possibly being recommended. Absolutely. I think contractors and just folks you may sub for at different gigs and it can be any kind of gig. 
scenario, like your wedding gigs up to subbing in a major orchestra, people look at, are you easy to get along with? Are you moody? Can you just kick it with folks or are you nitpicky? You know, um, Greg and I have recently been in a position to recommend people for gigs or a contract Mm -hmm. and it's a set system. We're like, I give you a gig and ideally you're going to give me one back too. And I think that that's an important... Yeah, it's very reciprocal. Yeah, reciprocal scenario to like start thinking about even before you have the opportunity to give gigs out. Yeah. Always be thinking ahead. I love the saying that's like, all things being equal, you're going to choose your friend. And all things not being equal, you're still going to choose your friend. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or like who you're going to hire in a sense when you have the opportunity to recommend somebody. And in those uh, scary financial times, don't be afraid to ask. Certainly you've got an uncle or a dad or a mom or somebody who's knowledgeable about finances because we're all going to be there in major slumps where we aren't sure how to pay rent or whatever. And it's always good to ask advice from people who are have a frugal mindset and know what it's like to even if they're not musicians. You know, I think as musicians, we get a little bit like, oh, well, I'm an artist and I create. And so I'm just going to have to like struggle through this season and just like ask advice from normal people. (laughs) It doesn't always have to be within the music community. I agree. I think that sets us up a little bit for next week is that when you're having money problems, like yes, making money is a great, is a great thing to do, but also finding areas in your life where you could save some money is also really important. And ideally you should be doing both at the same time. So we're going to talk a little bit more about this next week. I think we all have some good insights. I'm especially looking forward to uh, Greg and Anna's uh, secrets yeah. to credit card points. Or uh, It's all Greg. I just do what I'm told. He labels things in my wallet. Tune in next time for <laughs> spending tips. That is awesome. Oh, my gosh. Love it. All right. Yeah. That's good stuff. I got to make some money, guys. I got to go make the money. Make money, money, make money, make. Let's make some make money. Make money. All the money. I don't even know what that song is. <laughs> I, I really feel like we might be picked up to do some singing some along the line to say in. There you go. Until next time, I'm Michael Giblin. I'm Anna Luce. I'm Jessica Wiersma. And I'm Christian Marshall. Guys, we are so good at that now. I know. We haven't had a mess up with that for a long time. I'm so proud. Doing great. Well, that is our show, folks. Perservice.co slash 21 is where you'll find the summary of everything we talked about. We really appreciate you joining us for this discussion. And I think you noticed at first I didn't really agree with what Christian was saying. But the more I sat with it this week, the more I started to really understand it. And I think it's something like if you treat yourself like a third class citizen and don't respect your basic needs, you'll never be able to charge what you're really worth or believe that you are qualified to say what you have to say or create something that needs to exist in the world. We uh, also have a great guide for starting to make more money uh, by gigging. If you sign up for our email list, you can find that in the sidebar of our website at perservice.co. Our conversation with the four of us on the podcast is just the first step in our plan for world domination. Excuse me. I mean, to make the world a better place. And we'd like to invite you to join in in the discussion. We talk throughout the week on Slack, which is a cool app. And we'd like to encourage you to give our Slack community a try. The sign up form is on the show notes page or also at perservice.co slash 
Slack. That's S-L-A-C-K. You can follow us during the week. Also on Instagram, we are at Per Service Podcast. We love seeing what's going on in your life and your hashtag gig of the week. And another way you could really just help us out would be to leave us a rating or a review in iTunes. It shouldn't take you very long. It would just mean a lot to us to help other musicians find the show. And we greatly appreciate the support from Siri Bloom, Kathleen Lovingood, and Anne Brugman for supporting our show on Patreon. May the road rise up to meet you. And if you would like to join the community of supporters, head over to perservice.co slash patron, or you can just search for our show on patreon.com. And I leave you with this final quote. If you want something you've never had, you've got to do something you've never done. Well, we'll see you again in two weeks when we talk about money and how we can save it in creative ways. Until then, be well and practice well. Hey, you still there? Here's some bonus advice. Anna actually interviewed her dad and he's got some great, just basic financial advice. I think you'll really enjoy it. What about people that aren't even in the market for investing because they're too poor for that even? Like, do you have any like really basic uh, suggestions for like when Greg and I were in Austin and we were dirt poor making 10K maximum for two people? (laughs) Yeah, I would say this. Uh, What I've learned is the best thing is to try to your goal should be to get debt free as a young person. Now, realize you have to have a car, you have to have a, a, a house or whatever or pay your rent. But the thing to do is work on the debt that has the highest interest level. That would normally be credit card debt. So if you have some credit card debt, you want to get rid of that as soon as possible. And one way you can do that sometimes is if you have some assets, whatever that might be, and let's say you're paying credit card debt at like 15 or 20%, which is can happen, uh, you could actually take that asset, go to the bank if you had to, or to a friend that had some money that would be willing to lend you some, and you can borrow maybe money at 6 or 7 or 8% at a credit union. And, and and pay off your credit cards that you're paying almost 10% more. And that'll really help you get rid of that debt. So the idea is look at, you have to really sit down on paper, look at it, where, what your financial situation is, what debt you have, and try to eliminate that highest interest debt. And uh, the best thing is to work till you get debt free. Then you can put more money away in your 401k or whatever instrument you have uh, to save for the future for your retirement. And one thing good about that retirement money, even if you have a, a tragedy or something and you lose your job or whatever, you can always go to that. And so, there is a penalty, but at least you have that to go to as a savings in times when, let's say, you lo- lose a job and things really go bad. Mm-hmm. So uh, you want to have a, a, a safety net for yourself. And uh, they always recommend six months of your salary. Which you know, if you're making ten grand a year, is only five thousand. <laughs> so uh, we all need a safety net because you can't rely on the government always to take care of you because our government is they're in debt big time. So that's my advice. So prioritize a safety net and get rid of uh, high interest debt. Great, thanks, Dad.